0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Um, uh, We have some newlyweds in our midst. Just did their wedding last week. Chris and Andrea, could you guys stand up? So sorry. Come on, newlyweds right there. Oh, yeah, look at that. (laughs) A kiss and a high five. (laughs) <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's going to be a good marriage, actually. There's, there's a lot to be said there. A kiss and a high five. I um, wanted to recommend a resource for you guys as we are reading through Scripture together this year. When I first started reading the Bible many years ago, someone gave me, I can't remember who, a life application study Bible. And this was a tremendous help to me early on in my Bible reading. Like anyone else, when you first start reading the Bible, you, it's just a lot that you're like, what, what does this mean? And I didn't even really care what it meant as far as, I wasn't interested yet in context or the first century context or the nuances of the Greek or the Hebrew or any of that stuff. I just want to know, like, what does this mean for my life? I'm just trying not to, like, you know... I'm not going to tell you what I was trying not to do, but it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty legit. So, uh, I mean, illegit. So I was just like, what? I was was reading the Bible. I just want to know, what does this mean for my life? And this life application Bible was huge for me. My wife and I got these. We started reading through these, and this was our go-to Bible for years. It just has at the bottom of every page, Tons of helpful notes pertaining to exactly that. What does the verse that you just read mean for your life? How does it apply to your life today? Very basic, simple stuff, but really helpful. So uh, I still refer back to this. We want to recommend this to you as a resource, especially if you're new to regularly reading the Bible. This is invaluable. So we have them available for you at both campuses here in Carpentry and Ventura. In several different translations, you can pick them up, and I'm sure that you'll be blessed. If not, money back guarantee, why not? No problem. <laughs> okay, we are continuing in the book of Matthew. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, remembering that our Ventura campus is joining us for this sermon, and we love them so much. Ventura campus. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. You remember last week we were introduced to John the Baptist and his ministry and what that was all about. We talked about that rather extensively. Today we're going to see the baptism of Jesus. And I've entitled this message for verses 13 through 17, Identification and Identity, Humility and Glory. And it'll be pretty clear how those concepts, Identification and Identity, Humility and Glory, connect to our text as we read through it and talk about it. So again, the third chapter of Matthew, verses 13 through 17, I'll be reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. It says in verse 13, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted it this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. This is God's glorious word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would this morning together give us understanding of your word, what it tells us about Jesus, what it reveals to us, Father, about your love this glorious salvation that we've been given in Jesus because of your love. And then, of course, Lord, what it means for our lives, how we ought to think, live, act, and feel in light of what the text says. So give us understanding. And please, Lord, we ask together that you would help me by your Spirit to teach and preach in a way that would help us to understand. that you would then, by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform our lives to be a more full reflection of your love and your glory. We ask this together in Jesus' name, amen, amen. As we begin to talk about this rather famous text, the baptism of Jesus, that most of us have probably read several times, I want to present to us a sort of connected text which I think lays a good backdrop for the themes that we're talking about that come up in this, uh, in this text, identification and identity, humility and glory. And that's Philippians chapter 2, another famous text about Jesus. So let's just read this and let it be sort of a backdrop to talking about the text in Matthew. It says about Jesus in Philippians 2, Though he was God, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There we see in the Philippians text as well as in our Matthew text that Jesus has come to us in unexpected ways. And that was very much the experience of those who were present this day in Matthew chapter 3. You'll remember that they are in the Judean wilderness and John is baptizing. He's calling Israel to repent of their sins and be baptized as a picture of that. That they're confessing their sins in order to prepare themselves and the nation and humanity for the coming of the king and the kingdom. And John is acting as he was, as this Old Testament type prophet. He's wearing camel skin and he's got bugs in his teeth and honey in his beard and he's out there in the wilderness and all of Israel is coming to him. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He had walked dozens of miles from Galilee, far north from the Judean wilderness. And he comes where others are being baptized for the repentance of sins. And he says to John, here I am, I want to be baptized. And what we see in the text is that John is rather surprised that Jesus has come to meet him in the Judean wilderness to be baptized. After all, as we learned last week, John's baptism was a baptism for the confession and the repentance of sins. And John said last week that before Jesus was on the scene, there's one coming who is far mightier than I. I, even though I have this persona of a great Old Testament prophet and not even worthy to untie his sandals. And John said, as we saw in the text of last week in verse 11, that when this expected one, Jesus, came, he would baptize us in the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus didn't need to repent. It's one of the core scriptural understandings about Jesus is he had no sin. And John affirms that by saying, what are you doing? And Jesus certainly was greater. John's ministry was a preparation for Christ's ministry, not Christ's for John's. Why is John showing up to endorse the, or excuse me, Jesus showing up to endorse the ministry of John? John's baptism was a momentary thing at that time in history. It wasn't the ultimate. The ultimate was the baptism that Jesus would bring with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John was surprised. John said, I I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? He was saying, "If, if anyone in this exchange here needs to repent, Jesus, it's me, not you. You're the expected king. I'm not here to prepare you for your own coming. You're the king who we're looking for. In the baptism that you're going to bring of the Holy Spirit and fire, I'm in need, Jesus, of what you supply. Why are you coming to me? Jesus, as we see, as almost always, comes in unexpected ways, as was the evidence in his ancestry as was the evidence in his birth and being laid in a manger, as was the evidence of the Magi and his fleeing to Egypt and coming back and being raised in Nazareth. And Jesus, as even now, comes in unexpected ways. And so John and we are quite surprised that Jesus shows up to be baptized. So we ask along with John, Why? Why? If John's ministry is preparation for his coming, if Jesus had no sin, if Jesus had the truer, greater baptism, why did Jesus come to be baptized? This is an important theological issue. And this is massive in its implications. And this instance tells us everything we need to know about Jesus at this moment in the narrative. Jesus goes down into the waters of the Jordan with sinners because Jesus has come down from the glory of heaven to save sinners. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God with humanity. And who is humanity but sinners? And so what does he do? Jesus identifies himself with sinners. Jesus enters into the shame of rebellious Israel. Just as we had talked about Joseph as a picture of Jesus entering into the shame of Mary willingly because of love, Jesus here is entering into the shame of those who were supposed to have been his people but were rebellious Israel and ultimately all of humanity. He identifies himself with sinners. So that we could say then, if this is the beginning really of the ministry of Jesus, that the first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with us into the deep waters of repentance. And Jesus' whole life will be like this. We'll see as we journey through his life in the book of Matthew that he becomes known as the friend of Sinners. He's the one who will keep company with those whom no one else will keep company with. Prostitutes, outcasts, rebels, traitors, drunkards, the sexually immoral, financially corrupt, the socially unacceptable. Jesus becomes the friend of sinners and his whole life will be like this all the way to the end. Jesus' ministry ends on a cross between thieves, but it begins in a river among sinners. This is huge. Jesus' baptism was total identification with sinful humanity. He was not one of them. He himself was without sin, again a paramount belief of Christianity, and what scripture says, he himself was without sin. He was not one of us, but he has put himself among us in his baptism. After all, he is God with us. He who had no sin took a place among those who had no righteousness. He who had no sin of his own took a place among those who had no righteousness of their own. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, speaking of humanity and all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? Propitiation is the idea of a sacrifice that satisfies. In this case, the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard and the holy wrath of God. Jesus had to become like us and identifying with us both in his incarnation and now in his baptism that he might ultimately save us from the wrath of God. This was spoken of 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53. God, speaking of the coming Messiah, the promised King, Jesus says, My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Remember, we're talking about those who had no righteousness of their own. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. That's what's happening at the baptism of Jesus. He is placing himself among rebels in the midst of sinners being counted among their number though he had no sin of his own that we might be counted among the righteous though we have none of our own. Someone say thank you Jesus. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This is exactly what is happening at the baptism of Jesus. This is what stood behind Jesus' explanation to John in verse 15, when he said to John, listen, I know you feel uncomfortable about baptizing me, the king of glory, the expected one, the one that you've been talking about. He didn't say that, I'm adding now. He simply said this, verse 15, permitted at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is what was in his mind. The will and the plan of God for his servant, his son, who would become the sacrifice for sinners. When Jesus talked about fulfilling all righteousness, he meant the intention to fulfill God's will for his mission at that moment. God's good pleasure in saving humanity, to identify with sinful humanity that he might ultimately save us from our sin. This was the joyful plan of God. It says in Isaiah fifty-three ten. one verse prior, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's pretty profound language when you think about the reality of the cross. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if... He would render himself as a guilt offering, and the good pleasure, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That is why Jesus is being baptized, because it was the plan of God that he would step down from glory into the midst of messy humanity, us, our story, our lives, and in the incarnation and pictured here in his baptism, fully identify with our messiness, being free from a mess of his own. Fully identify with us in our brokenness, being unbroken himself. Fully identify with us in our sinfulness, he being without sin. This is the theological concept of, concepts of identification and substitution identification, and substitution. Again, in his baptism, Jesus identified with sinners so that he might be the substitute for sinners on the cross. In his baptism, he identified with us so that he might ultimately be the substitute for us on the cross. Does that make sense? The idea of Identification and substitution. This is how, in the economy of God, salvation works. Christ dying in our place. And this is essentially identification and substitution. How our salvation is initiated. Similarly, or flipping the coin, we identify with Jesus as our substitute through faith, but pictured in baptism. This is what Romans chapter 6 says. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, okay, this is identification language, joined, right? We weren't there. This is identification. It's talking about our baptism, not Christ's baptism now. It's talking about Christian baptism. This is identification language. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. That's the part that I mean we weren't there. We identify with him in his dying, his substitution for us. For we died and were buried with Christ. Identification. By baptism. Just as Jesus' baptism was a picture of his identification with us in our sin. Our baptism became the picture of our identification with him and his work upon the cross. Continuing in verse 4. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Okay, here's where you got to lay hold of this for a moment. And its implications, identification, and substitution are real. They're not make-believe things. It's not like a stand-in in in a movie or something like that. I mean, they're real in the sense that math is real. Two plus two really equals four. It really doesn't. And if you try to substitute a three for one of the twos, you don't have four anymore. It's really meaningful what is pictured there, what's identified by the figure two and two and four. There's real substance behind it in the same way. In God's economy, Christ identifying with us and being our substitute is real. It's not make-believe. It's not like uh, Sunday school with little felt figures on a board where, you know, whatever. This is like something God has really done in the incarnation in the cross of Christ. Pictured by that fact, now we also may live new lives. It's not talking about mere intellectual ascent. It's not that Jesus kind of came along at the Jordan and went, here's the deal, guys, this is cute. You're all being baptized out here by this bug-eating, honey-bearded guy. This is really neat. I'm gonna do it with you guys so we just kind of feel like team spirit. Right, this wasn't a corporate retreat. That's not what's going on here. Like, okay, I'll do it with you. Look, together. In the economy, and the power of God, this was something real taking place when God draped himself in humanity and identified with our sinfulness. Since, verse 5, we have been united with him in his death. Identification, again, but real in the work of God, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Man, how did that happen? We weren't around 2,000 years ago. We, we, We weren't nailed there, but in some real way in the economy of God through the work of identification and substitution, we were. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. I want you to say that last phrase. We are no longer slaves to sin. I want you to say it again. We are no longer slaves to sin if what we're talking about is real in the economy of God, if the incarnation and His appearance and His baptism and His cross and His resurrection are real, then this truth is real. We are no longer slaves to sin. I know sometimes we feel like we're still enslaved. I know that culture would tell us we'll always be slaves. I know that we often take on the persona and the identity of a slave. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've identified with him and his person and his work on the cross and accepted him by faith as your substitute and been baptized as a picture of that reality, then sin has lost its power in your life. So sin is no longer your master. So don't be so quick to say, yes, don't be so quick to give in, to give up, to give over, to stay in it. His power has been broken. As sure as Christ was in the Judean wilderness in the waters of the Jordan, the power of sin has been broken. This is the reality of the doctrine of identification and substitution. And our being baptized We are identified with Jesus so that we might receive the benefits of his substitutionary death for us on the cross. Jesus' baptism was his identifying with sinners. Our baptism, Christian baptism, is us identifying with Christ and his cross. And then, as we're saying, as this text is telling us, everything for us changes. The world was never the same after the day that Jesus made his appearance in the Judean wilderness and was baptized. For us, when this becomes real, everything changes. We have a core identity change. It's pictured here in the text, also in Christ's baptism. Look in verses 16 and 17. It says, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Don't you sometimes read the Bible and just, wish you were there? Just wish you were there? What was it like? I mean, it it would have been enough just to be there and see John the Baptist. Just to see John the Baptist. And all the people coming to repent and and be baptized, and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing there aloof thinking, we don't need that. Just to see this, this tension happening as the kingdom of God is being made manifest on earth. But then Jesus comes. Baptized after he and John have this little argument, really? Little argument? John lost. <laughs> Comes up out of the water and the heavens are open. What did, what did, what did that look like? I don't know. I don't know, you gotta get a children's Bible, Pictorial Bible. <laughs> Even that won't tell you what it feels. Felt like what was the experience like? Christ comes out of the water, the heavens are open, and then the spirit descends like a dove. What was that like? Well, you've seen the kids' Bible, and you know what a dove looks like. I don't think it was anything like that. I mean, it was like a dove. I, I don't think it was a, a bird. Maybe, I don't. It was unmistakably the Spirit of God. Nobody was like, oh, look at Dove. What a coincidence. (laughs) There's something about how it felt, how it looked, what was happening, the electricity in the air, the power of God made manifest that they knew. This was the Spirit of God. For Israel to say that was no small thing. This would have brought them back to the thought of creation when the spirit hovered and brooded there and those waters were formed. Spirit of God came upon Jesus. What did that look like? I don't know. But then to top it all off, The voice the voice what did it sound like Israel hadn't heard that voice in 400 years all they wanted was to someday hear the voice of God speaking to them again And they got more than they expected. It wasn't the mere voice of a prophet. It wasn't scribbled on a scroll or chiseled on stone. It reverberated through the air. They heard it, felt it, the voice of God. Saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was That was volumes being said to ancient Israel in a sentence. This is my beloved son. Of course they would have thought of Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. The promise that God would someday give the nation's to his son and his son would be a king who would reign forever this was the language of Isaiah the prophet that someday a son would come and that there was a conjunction of the spirit coming upon the son this was the language of Isaiah 61 Jesus would just connect the dots for them and later on quote it in the synagogue in Luke chapter four when he would say from Isaiah 61, the spirit of God is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted, set the captives free. When they saw this experience of God Made a lot of sense. The prophet, the expected one, the spirit, the voice of the Father. I don't know if they got the Trinity at that moment, but it's there. All of this happening in the Judean wilderness. Jesus identifying with humanity, and now the Father. Identifying him as deity. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the father speaking of the love that exists between himself and the son, that we'll see play out repeatedly in the gospels, that we know is true, that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship of love after which our very existence is patterned and our relationships are meant to be patterned, an eternal relationship of love that we through salvation have been invited into. And it speaks of the nature of God's love. For it was before Jesus did anything in his ministry that the father spoke to him and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what we would have done? We would have waited until Jesus pulled off the cross and the resurrection and the ascension to glory and probably the second coming too. Because we withhold those sort of things for performance generally. Not with our little babies, but after about the age two. You better perform well. This is not the love of God. This is a picture for us in the time-space continuum of the way that God's love has always been throughout of eternity and comes to us in its unconditional nature. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before Israel, you've seen him do anything before he's had the opportunity to obey me all the way through Gethsemane and the cross, I am pleased with him. This is the language, the new language of identity. There's two key issues that are settled here for Jesus before he begins his ministry. The issue of identity and the issue of power. The power one is the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And we'll see in his life, in his time in the incarnation, Jesus ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see in his life, in his time incarnate, that Jesus ministered out of his identity as the beloved Son of God. In other words, he never did his work in order to have to gain the Father's approval. He did his work out of a place of already having been approved by the Father in his unconditional love. This is a picture for us. This identity thing, Jesus being the beloved Son of God, is what gets him through Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, the dark night of the soul, and we will all have our Gethsemanes when the hardest thing in the world, listen to me, when the hardest thing in the world to do is trust God. That's what Gethsemane is. It's when life comes to that moment when the hardest thing to do is trust God. Jesus was able to say, Father, Not my will be done. Your will be done. Because he knew that the Father loved him perfectly. Therefore, he could trust him in the moment of Gethsemane. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is the essence of the Christian life. These truths seen here in the baptism of Jesus of spirit an identity as the beloved. This is the essence and the whole of Christian life. Look what Romans chapter 8 says to us. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. There's that word propitiation behind that. Who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Pause right there. In all sorts of ways, right? Death in relationships. Death in vitality, death in vibrancy, death in purity, death in the pursuit of holiness, in all sorts of ways. This is a glorious hope of the Christian life. So, second part of verse 6, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Pause right there. In everything, life and peace and relationships, life and peace and purity, life and peace in the inner person, resting, continuing, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you, listen now, this is identity, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. That's a theological statement that simply says if you're a Christian, God's spirit is in you and that this is real and that this brings actual transformation into our lives. Listen, listen, let me say it clearly because statistics show that most people in America view themselves as Christians. Evidence shows that most people in America are not even close to, to being Christians. The truth of the scripture is, no transformation, there is no Christianity. If you have identified with Christ and his death upon the cross, and identified with his resurrection, and so been given new life, and his spirit lives in you, and you have a new identity as the beloved of God, there's going to be change in your life. It may be incremental. It may sometimes be painfully slow. It's going to be deep in the interior, in the place of our desires and our passions and our will. It's not going to be mere external formalities or adherences. It's going to be an imputed righteousness from the inside that shows that we have been changed and given a new nature. If that isn't there, then you don't have a new nature. You've never experienced putting your faith in Jesus Christ, being forgiven of your sins, and born again, and being given the gift of new life by His Spirit in you, and receiving a new identity as a beloved of God. If all that happens, and there's no transformation, then that never happened. Logic. But if it has happened, That God's spirit is working in you and we need to hear these truths that we are no longer controlled by the flesh and sin. There may be a battle, but let me tell you who wins arguments. Jesus. Just ask John. Verse 10. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin. The Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. Justification. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. We we don't often believe that. Let's read it again. Oh no, go back, brother. Thank you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. The Spirit of God, the issue of power, the person of the Holy Spirit resides in us. Greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. The power of sin has been broken. Sometimes it feels like we have no other choice but to do this thing or to give into this thing. And that's just not gospel truth. Here's a a parallel passage for you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome us except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that we may endure under it. You see what that text said? Or did you hear what it said as I quoted it to you? God has put parameters on the power of sin, He has put parameters on temptation. This is good news. This is good news. Because the man or the woman who has been born again wants to pursue righteousness and wants to forsake sin. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7. I want to do the right thing. I so often find myself doing the wrong thing. I want to do the right thing. Who will save me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. So this is good news for those of us who are in the journey of being conformed to the image of Christ. The journey of sanctification. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. It is a winning journey. Proposition. It is a winning proposition. Don't let the world, don't let the devil, don't let anybody else tell you that it is a losing proposition. The movement by the Holy Spirit in us and through us to be conformed to the image of Jesus is a winning proposition by the power of God. Verse 13. For if you live by its dictates the flesh, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Now here comes some more identity stuff. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. See, there's there's the help in the Gethsemane moment. Right? This is the... This is the, the, the fleshing out of what was pictured in the baptism of Christ where the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The unconditional love of God directed to, toward those whom are his beloved sons and daughters. This is a Gethsemane moment. You've not received a spirit of fear that makes you fearful slaves. So when the hardest thing to do is trust God, if your view of God is that he's a taskmaster and you're just a slave, then there's never gonna be that trust. But if your view of God is what we see in the baptism of Jesus, that he is a loving father who is well pleased with you, who is all powerful and working his will in your life, then we can out of that place of the father's love and from that space of identity find the grace to trust God in the most heartbreaking moments of life. Because Next part of verse 15. You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For the spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. This is the essence of Christian life. Life in the spirit, life as the beloved of God. This is a picture that we see of Our Lord it is baptism, spirit descending, the statement of the Father, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, and we have become the beloved of God in whom his spirit lives now that 's core identity change, core identity change before putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the core identity was. Sinner, rebel. Now the core identity is beloved daughter, beloved son. We may still sin, so we may be able to say on occasion, the New Testament says this, that we are sinners in the sense that a surfer serfs. Amen. But it's not the core identity. A core identity now for the Christian is beloved son, beloved daughter. The Father says of you, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And the space and the place and the chronology in which this happens in the lifetime of Christ tells us that that is apart from our ability to perform or our failure to perform. That's why it's gospel, good news, not good advice. Good advice would be, hey, if you do better in this area and do less of that stuff, God will love you more. That's false religion. Good news, what is brought to us in the person of Christ and shown to us in the text is that despite what you have failed to do, and despite of all that you have done, you are loved by God. This is good news. And this is big time, life-changing theology. So let me just spell out those two phrases again. Christ's identification with sinners and the believer's Identity in Christ. And what that means tomorrow. We want to know what it means tomorrow. Because tomorrow, you might sin. So what does the beloved of God do when they sin? Christ's identification with sinners, the picture of his baptism, means that we can confidently Come to Jesus when we sin. This is also part of the good news. This is somewhat counterintuitive to our performance-oriented, radical Western individualistic Americanism, which says, don't come to me unless you've done well, and our deeply held, demonically formed, religious sort of bent. This is why I can't go to God unless I'm doing well. These things are earthly and demonic. The good news is that when we sin, we can run to Jesus. For Christ ran to us to be among us and identify with us in our sinfulness. We don't deserve it. It's like Peter Peter in Luke chapter 5, when he finally saw the power of Jesus at the great catch of fish, Peter said, Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. There was that performance-oriented thing, that I need to earn it religion sort of thing, and it was contrary to the Jesus thing. The Jesus thing as he came to be numbered among sinners, that when we sin, we can run to him, not from him, Look what Hebrews says. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. There's that important doctrinal point. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Notice it's a throne of grace, not a throne of merit. It never says that. It's not the place where we get to go when we've done well. No such place. It's a throne of grace and grace alone. It is for those who have not done well. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive what we deserve. Not what it says! So that we may receive Mercy and find justice. Not what it says. Grace, grace to help in the time of need. Doctrine of identification pictured in Christ's baptism where he identified with sinful humanity tells us that we can run to Jesus, not from him when we sin. For in Christ, grace has been brought to us. He's there for that very reason. I don't know about you, but that that changes then. That changes then the way that we live the way that we think about sin, the way that we think about God, the way we think about the moments after, the way we think about the long, hard years after that irreversible decision, Something very earthly and American and wrong, something very demonic and religious and false has told us that we need to run from God and hide from God in our sin as though we could. But Jesus walked into the Judean wilderness and said, I have run to you, sinner, so that you can always come to me as my beloved. so the believer's identity in Christ means that we can confidently live in and function out of God's love. That changes the way that I think about righteousness and pursuing righteousness and forsaking sin. Right something very American and something very demonic has told us that we ought to do the right thing to somehow impress God. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. We have the unconditional love of God and we begin to function and live out of God's love. So when I know that I'm loved in that way, it changes how I think about wanting to do the right thing. You get that concept? when you know that you're loved that way in spite of the bad things that we've done, it changes the way I think about doing the right thing. No longer does it feel as though it's just burdensome and a bummer. Now, wow, God loves me. I'm the beloved son of God. I want to live differently for the glory of God. And that brings what is supposed to be a core component of the Christian faith, joy. Joy in the Lord. Joy in the Holy Spirit. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Christ humbled himself in being identified with us. And as the text in Philippians told us, he was highly exalted and has a name above all names. By humbling ourselves, we become identified with him. And in that is a sort of exaltation from the weight of sin, a lifting up from the grinding, breaking power of sin. And that identity as sinner. And that weight of shame, Christ has entered into our shame and lifted it for us. Lord, that you would cause these things to thrill our hearts. I just don't know what else to say, Lord. I realize I had no close to my sermon there. And I ask the Holy Spirit you would close it for us by causing these things to become wonderfully real to us and bringing us who were once merely sinners who are now the beloved of God in Christ. Great joy. Thank you for the grace that has been brought to us. Teach us what it means to live out of this identity as the beloved of God. Teach us how to, even today, even right now, even in the midst of the sinful stuff that we're fooling around with, to run to you, Jesus. Thank you that your throne is one of grace. Would you find us today as those in need of it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.